Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I want to say a big thank you for listening in on our weekly radio broadcast. We broadcast every week here on Sunday mornings, but we also have other opportunities for you to engage with our church throughout the week. And so if you would go to collegehills.org, you can find out a little bit more about our church and about other ways that you can engage with us, not just online, but on campus. We are journeying through a series right now in this radio broadcast that we're calling Ministry Under Pressure, Clarifying the Mission of the Church. We are moving through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are trying to glean wisdom from the words of Paul about what matters most in the life of a church. We are in a season where a lot of us feel under pressure, and I believe these words of Paul are especially helpful in helping us clarify what should be most important in our lives of faith and our lives of communities of faith. And so if you have your Bible, this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Dear God, thank You so much for this new day and this new week. I am grateful for these words of Paul and the ways in which they give us life and they give us perspective in these uncertain times. And I pray today that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. One of the challenges that you will discover when you are preaching through a book of the Bible is that if the preacher decides to skip some verses, then you notice. (laughs) It's the challenge of the Bible, really. There are these parts that are sometimes confusing and confronting or confined to the past, and sometimes it's tempting to maybe hop and skip and jump to those more beloved, highlighted 
verses. And I would say our text this morning is one of those that I would prefer to skip, but because if I'm completely honest about Paul's words today, they are difficult and tricky. And a huge part of the challenge of this passage is that Paul uses a word throughout this passage that is likely foreign to most of us. The word glory. Glory is not the most popular word these days. We use it some. If I say old glory, then you know I'm talking about the U.S. flag. Or if I make a reference to the movie Glory, you might know that I'm talking about a movie from many years ago that told the story of African-American military unit in the Civil War. You might think of that famous plant, Morning Glory, or you might know of someone who once upon a time used the phrase, or maybe they still do, in a moment of gasping or a moment of surprise, well, glory. But for the most part, it's like those few sweaters that hang in the back of your closet, lonely, barely ever put on. They're Some that are striped and plaid, waiting there in silence. You see them there, but you never really pull them out. They just kind of hang there. They are around, but they're not really used. The word glory is kind of like that. It's not a word that we would use a lot on a day-to-day basis, and so it doesn't get a lot of wear and tear. And for a lot of us, because of that, the concept of that word can be a bit confusing and fuzzy. And yet glory stands at the center of our passage this morning. Paul uses this word, or a form of this word, 11 times in 12 verses. 11 times in 12 verses. And for those who have ever been a teacher before, you know that there's something about repetition that shows that a concept or a word is important. So there's a priority that Paul is giving here on this word. And what Paul does to help us get our hearts and our minds around this word glory is he refers back to that powerful story of Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 34. I don't know how familiar you are with this story, but Exodus is this powerful account of God's relentless, yet at times rocky relationship with His people. Yes, He hears their cry from bondage and delivers them out of slavery from the Egyptians. He calls them to be His people. But soon after He makes a covenant with them, these Israelites, his people, go and build an idol, and they give this piece of metal credit for their deliverance. And it is a back and forth with them and God that Moses stands in the middle of. He's in the middle of this rocky relationship, serving as a kind of mediator. And so he talks to God in that event trying to save these people, trying to advocate for these people. And he does this up on a mountain in direct 
contact and communication with God. And at the end of this conversation that Moses has with God in this role of mediator, this role of advocate, he then walks down the mountain and he sees the people worshiping. And all of a sudden, when he sees the people worshiping this idol, Moses also becomes much like God and that he is ready to wring their necks, wring their stiff necks, so to speak. And then as he goes back up the mountain to intercede for them, the text says that he spoke to God face to face. Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. Moses is their minister pleading with God to restore the covenant. And surprisingly, God responds by declaring His faithfulness and love. And there's this beautiful scene where Moses is there in the cleft of a rock and God passes before Moses and he rewrites on those stone tablets his covenant with them. It's a covenant renewal. And Moses comes down off this literal mountaintop experience with his face shining brightly. And the reason why his face shines brightly is because the glory of the Lord had just passed before him. Moses had had this amazing encounter with God on the mountaintop, and he comes back down the mountain, and he is visually changed because of the experience. And Paul references this event, and he references this event in order to to bring clarity to this fuzzy concept, this fuzzy word, glory. Moses had this encounter with the Lord, this weighty experience, this moment in the presence of the Lord. The Lord, with all of His splendor and majesty and power and might, passed before Moses. And that is getting at the heart of what glory means. That is the kind of glory that Paul wants our readers then and our readers now to imagine as we hear this word 11 times in 12 verses. And the reason why Paul uses the word so much here is because this word glory stands at the center of his ministry and it stands at the center of Christian life. Glory is one of those important concepts and important dimensions in the life of a church. In fact, Paul says that in comparison to the ministry of Moses, his ministry is greater in glory. His ministry is greater in glory than Moses, the one who stood on the mountain with God. And that is a bold statement for even Paul to make. But the reason that he explains this is because the reason his is greater is because his ministry is that of Christ's ministry, a ministry shaped by Christ. But even more than Paul's ministry experience being that of a, of a greater glory, Paul, Paul also says that the church experiences a glory greater than that of Moses and the Israelites. The one who stood at the base of the mountain, the 
people who stood at the base of the mountain, those who saw Moses descending with a face shining brightly. Paul says, we, the church, experience something even greater in Christ. Because for Paul, God did something new in Christ. In Christ, the promises of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel are fulfilled. We hear from those prophets these words, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In another place, a new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This happens in Christ. These words are fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, God justifies. In Christ, God removes the veil. In Christ, He leaves His Spirit to empower the church. God gives life and new hearts to those who turn to Him. God allows the people of God to interact with Him in a new way. There is freedom. There is this permanence and eternal significance. The veil is removed in Christ. And for that reason, we experience a different and direct kind of glory. Paul's ministry and the Christian life shines brighter than Moses' face. There is splendor and radiance, not just in Paul's ministry, but also in the life of Christians, also in the life of the church, because it's there that God's glory is reflected. But like I said earlier, this is a difficult and tricky passage, because because this kind of glory that defines Paul's ministry, the church, the Christian life, it it can sometimes seem distant from the life that I know, and maybe the life that you know. I remember when I was in graduate school training to become a minister, and in one of my ministry classes, my mentor, an individual that I worked for, was going to consult with a church, and he had a visual disability, and so I would often drive him to these different consulting appointments. And I remember this particular trip because it was about an hour from where the school was in Texas, and we were driving there for a late-night meeting that he was going to be having with a, a group of elders, and he was meeting in the home of one of those elders. He asked me to to simply wait in another room and then he was going to meet with him, and then I would drive him back to the university. But I was sitting in the room next to the meeting, and he knew I would be able to overhear some of the things they were talking about. And as the meeting progressed and as it unfolded, I realized very quickly that this church had a lot of issues that it was working through. It had a lot of challenges it was working through. It had a lot of conflict it was working through. I was working on homework while he was meeting and consulting with them, and then we got into the car, and I remember driving back, and I asked him if I could ask him a question about the meeting because I had overheard some of the conversation, and he was very generous, and he asked me to feel free to ask him anything, and I 
simply asked him, because he consulted with churches all over the country, was that situation unique, some of the things that he was wrestling with, with that leadership. And he laughed and he said, No, Wilson, what you're going to find is that once you work in a church a while, once you're present in a church a while, you're going to realize there's maybe more warts than you want to admit. There's going to be more problems than you may first perceive. If you spend time there long enough, then you're going to know that the people aren't perfect because none of us are perfect. And as we continue to drive down the road, I remember a mental shift happening for me. This realization that there's going to be challenges with church. But even though I kind of registered it in my mind in that moment, I didn't really let it sink deep in my heart. But over time, in the next couple of years, as I began to work with a small church in the area, the reality of what my mentor said moved from my head to my heart. I saw some difficult things in the church where I worked. And I'm sure that you have seen and experienced difficult things and difficult people as well. I've heard stories of people who refuse to forgive even though they sit in the same room with another person. I've heard of churches splitting and resplitting and splitting again, because I guess three is biblical. I'm not sure why they would split three times, but it's this never-ending cycle for some places. I have friends who have told me their experience with church and how their family, when they were very young, were left out in the cold for some reason, and they never felt a part of a community of faith. I have relatives who, to this day, will step foot in a church because this particular church hurt them, and they are convinced that the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. I know, I know personal stories, and I know stories from others that make me very aware that the church at times can feel like it it lacks this splendor and radiance and glory that Paul speaks of. And so these words that he writes are sometimes difficult for me to embrace when I think about the church today because we've all had our fair share of difficult experiences with church. A word like glory may not be the word that you immediately think of when you think of church. And so Paul's words here about our experience in the Christian life and our experience of church having a glory that exceeds that of Moses may just feel a bit too distant and out of reach. And I think what happens is when you begin to experience this doubt about glory, when you begin to question if if the church can really be a place that demonstrates the glory of God, then you also begin to doubt it in yourself. 
You begin to doubt that that even you personally in your Christian life can experience this kind of glory. You may think about your Christian walk resembling more the words of that well-known Tennessee philosopher Kenny Chesney who talks about things being one step up and two steps back. Maybe you have felt that in your own Christian walk. You feel like you make progress and then out of nowhere it feels like you just regress and you didn't even expect it. Maybe you can identify with these words of, of an author reflecting on his Christian life. He writes this, I'm disappointed with myself. Not so much with the particular things I have done as with the aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that not all is as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I can't do basic home repairs and things like that. Some of it's neurotic. I'm too concerned with what others think of me. I'm just disappointed with my ordinariness. I want to be, in the words of Garrison Keillor, named Sun God, King of America, Idol of Millions, Bringer of Fire, the Great Haji, Thundar the Boy Giant. But I'm not. I'm disappointed when I look on my children or spouse at night and think of the parent, spouse, neighbor, and friend that I want to be. I'm disappointed that I still love God so much, but also sin so much. I always had the idea that as a child, adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. Yet the truth is, I am embarrassingly sinful. I am capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do. I am disappointed at my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray very long without my mind drifting into a fantasy of anger or achievement. End quote. And I don't know if there's anything about that quote that connects with you, where we can be very, very tuned in in our own personal lives with the the things that we just haven't done right, the things that we have disappointed ourselves or others with. And that can hang over us, those feelings of disappointment, those feelings of disappointment about the church or our own Christian lives. And this notion of, of God's glory may seem like a distant and fuzzy thing. And yet, and yet for Paul, he still sees God's glory. Because, because for Paul, God's glory is seen in the transformation of God's people. When people transform, God's glory is at work. And so, yes, I've seen my share of disappointment in the church and in my life, but if I stop to think about it, I've also seen my share of God's glory as well. I've seen God's glory in my friend John. My friend John worked for John Deere Tractor in his 20s. He was making six figures. He was a bit rough around the edges, but he was doing really well for this company. Somewhere in his mid-career, he was unexpectedly converted by a co-worker, and he was so compelled, he felt called to Christ, not just with his life, but also 
in ministry, full-time congregational ministry. And so he sold everything he had in Illinois. He went to school to become a minister, and he still today serves in this vocation. And I worked with this man many years ago as a kind of intern for him. And at the end of that summer, his brother and sister-in-law became Christians. After years of him serving in ministry, after years of him praying for his brother and sister-in-law, decades later, they finally became Christians. And his brother said that his reason for coming to Christ was because after all these years of watching John, he noticed something. He noticed he didn't get angry the way he used to. He used to punch holes in walls and beat people up, but he now noticed a peace and a love that resided in him over the years. He saw glory in John's transformation, and that glory drew him to Christ. I saw glory in the life of my friend many years ago. My friend called me one day to tell me about some friends of her who she had been praying for over the last couple of years. They were estranged. There was a deep rift between the two, and she had been praying for reconciliation. And then one day out of nowhere, that friend called her up and said she wanted to reconcile. And in that moment, My friend saw the glory of God. I remember seeing glory in college. A friend of mine struggled with an eating disorder for two years. But then my senior year, she began counseling. She began eating. She began to regain life and smiles and herself again. She transformed right before my very eyes. And when we see these transformations, Paul says we see God's glory. It's not always going to be large and bright and in our face, but there is still glory there. And sometimes we just have to look for it. And sometimes we have to look for it extra hard in this often dark world. Because there is glory when we turn and see ourselves in Christ. We see glory when we admit that we have a new heart and a new life and we seek to live that life out. There is glory when we recognize that we have the spirit of freedom within us, changing us day by day. So whenever our hearts soften and we take on the shape of the cross, whenever we decide to be the first one to say, I'm sorry, Whenever we choose to serve that person we cannot stand, whenever we are slow to speak and slow to get angry instead of popping off at someone, whenever we say no in the face of sexual temptation, whenever we pray for and love our enemies, when we raise money for orphans, when we raise money for people in need of water in another country, When someone decides to overcome an addiction, all of these small transformations reflect the glory of God.
There is glory at work in your life and mine. There is glory at work in the church because because God is still in the business of transforming people. God is still actively changing hearts and changing lives. It's not always going to be large and bright and in our face, but there is glory there. Sometimes, sometimes we just have to look for it. And sometimes we just have to look for it a bit extra hard in an often dark world. And so this week, my prayer is that we would all have eyes to see the glory of God. That we would have eyes to see the ways in which God is slowly changing us from glory to glory and how God is changing those around us from glory to glory. And the more that we contemplate that glory with unveiled faces, we are becoming more and more like the image of His glorious Son. We are being changed from glory to glory. And we will begin to see that glory is not so far away after all. Amen.